Acts chapter 18. Just so that you guys are aware, uh, as I'm sure you already know, there are many things that the church gets charged with not doing, and many of them are not even close to being what is the church's responsibility. Uh, Not just us, just church in general. For instance, uh, the church, you know, didn't meet the needs of this person or this family or the church doesn't have this program or that program or this kind of worship or uh, that kind of pastor or this kind of pastor teaching uh, or this building or this kind of place to, to serve and to worship. Uh, typically what happens is a person very simply and very easily falls into consumerism and looks for what the church can do for them when that's not what the church is for. So of course the church lets them down and and it's uh, on the church for not doing or being or having this thing. But it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the church. It would be like a dad being upset with his kid for not meeting his needs. That relationship is not about receiving, but giving, sacrificially, loving unconditionally, no matter how much love is returned, if any. This is the truth of our relationship to the church because the church is not a building, but people. We are the church. The church, if it is seen as an institution alone, will always let us down because it's never going to be perfect. Something will always be wrong with it. Something is always going to be different that doesn't meet our specific needs. It's just like owning a home. There's always something that needs work But those who live in the home, they do that work. They work on that home, not for the sake of the house, but for the sake of the people in the home. That's why we take care of it. The church, if only seen as a building or an institution, will always let us down when all along the focus was always meant to be people. We are the church. And if we are the church, then it's not about my needs, but about the glory of Christ and the good of his people. This is what the church is for, and this is what the church should be charged with if it is not happening. Not that it doesn't have this program or that program or a worship set that could go on tour, but are we, the people, living a life for the glory of God and for the good of others? It's the life mission for all who believe. What are some ways that we can do this? Let's read Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and, he was, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and together with his entire household, 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on, on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer <clears throat> and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Achilla. At Syncre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left him there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when per Priscilla and Achilla heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We are in this room, none of us holy before you. And yet, Father, you have spoken to us by your word to reveal to us the plan of salvation, to show us your son. And so, Father, now, as we read it, as we dig into it, would you show us your son? Would you show us the way of your salvation so that if we are not a believer, we believe, and that if we are a believer, we believe again? so that we are kept in perfect peace, so that we have a, 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 remi a reminder, a remembrance of who we truly are in Christ. God, would you point us to the cross by this text? Would you show us yourself? It's only a work that you can do, God. And so in that, if there is anything that I try to add to your work that is not of you, I pray that you would help us all forget it. Remove it from our minds. Help us to see only you, Father. 
Help us to be encouraged and built up in faith so that we might love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Living a life for the glory of God and for the good of others is the life mission for all who believe. This is the charge of the church as we, the people. And there are many ways that God provides uh, us as ways to do this in his word and many ways even in this text. But we're going to focus only on a few because one or two of them have just multiple outpourings and multiple ways that they uh, impact the text. And we see them through both Paul and Apollos. Both uh, Paul, if you will, would be the missionary, the preacher, the, the professional guy. Apollos is not. He's the everyday guy. He's the guy with the normal job. He is, but both of them have the exact same job. Both of them have the exact same mission from God. And so what we'll see by them, we see three things. Be occupied with Jesus. Refute false gospels. And do not be afraid. Be occupied with Jesus. Refute false gospels. And do not be afraid. Let's look at the first one. We begin our passage with Paul leaving Athens and he's now going to Corinth where uh, he's going to experience and encounter some of the toughest people in all of his life. Uh, why? Is because Corinth was a commercial hub. It was a port city. I'll show you um, two pictures. <laughs> you don't need glasses. It's a very blurry picture. Uh, it's what Corinth looks like now. Uh, this is a... Sorry, yeah, go back. This one um, is actually NASA took it. It's recent. Uh, you can see that there is a canal across uh, this isthmus. Uh, there was not this canal before. So what they would do is they would load these ships up onto this wooden rail and they would take it across the canal. Um, that took a long time for big ships who would come through this little area. And so uh, in this meantime, all of the sailors, everyone, it's just this commercial hub and uh, Corinth had, in the middle of its city, a temple for the goddess of sex and love. And so what that meant was there were thousands upon thousands of women slaves to the goddess um, that would go around and say, do you want to worship? And so it was a city that was known for stuff like this. It was a city that was known for being immoral in so many different ways. And this is a city that Paul is now stepping into. Paul actually spends uh, a good chunk of his letters addressing sexual morality because of this. But in spite of this, it's also a prime spot for gospel advancement as people from all over the world came through this little area. And they're searching for something. And we have First and Second Corinthians because of their issues. But why was he so upset? If you look at verse 6, They opposed and reviled him. And this doesn't translate super well, as this was a culture of honor and shame. Uh, a few chapters ago, if you'll remember, uh, the jailer, as Paul and Silas were in the jail, uh, an earthquake happens and all of the chains fall off of all of the prisoners and the jailer is going to kill himself. He's going to fall on his sword. Why? Is because it was a shame. 
It was a shame for that to happen. If a man is going to kill himself rather than be shamed, then what they're doing here to Paul in opposing and reviling him is disgusting. They're opposing and reviling him. He would rather take a beating than what they have to say. Why are they doing this? Because Paul is speaking to them and teaching them about Jesus. He's teaching Jews. The same people group uh, that upon hearing Jesus himself plotted to have him killed because he claimed to be the Messiah. Because Jews have this long history of waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah. He has come and they've missed it. And so Paul is claiming the same thing in verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Reason there is arguing. He's showing them from Scripture. He tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. They're waiting desperately for their Messiah that they know is coming. And Paul is telling them, you guys missed him. He's gone now, but eternal life with him is still a possibility because you are all, we are all extremely sinful and there's no other way that we can make it to him unless he came and lived a life that we should have lived and died in our place and that's exactly what he did. This Jesus, the Messiah, he didn't die and stay there. He rose again. They're upset because they know if he was the Messiah, then everything would be fixed. They misunderstand. And so this would be what considered what we call today uh, evangelism. The difference, though, is that Paul is not necessarily going to evangelize. He's just simply being part of who he is in Christ. A huge reason why we do struggle with this very thing is that it's this thing that we have to go and do. And so we get we feel guilty for never doing it when it's supposed to be just something that is a part of who we are, a part of just as eating or as breathing. We have Jesus on our minds and so we can easily talk about him. It's supposed to be easy, but let's also be honest, it's sometimes awkward. It's sometimes difficult, especially if it's seen as something that, you know, we have to weave Christ into every conversation, even about the stock market. Uh, Speaking of stocks rising, have you heard of Jesus rising? <laughs> but in all seriousness, it becomes increasing, it's becoming increasingly difficult to speak about a just judge in heaven to a culture where truth is relative. When everyone has their own truths, our one specific truth is seen as oppressive and exclusive. And so what Paul knows and and what we now know, what we're getting to know here in our culture, is we might be mocked. We might be opposed. We might be reviled. And we might even be killed. And if it might be awkward or or we might be mocked or killed, and if it's this thing that we have to go and do, if both of those are together, it will never happen. But it's never something that's supposed to be removed from our everyday lives. When we wake up in the morning, whatever our day looks like, we should pray for God to open our heart and life to conversations where we might make a friend and maybe speak boldly about Jesus. Uh, Our worship pastor, Aaron Alvarado, said something a few years ago that's always stuck with me. 
He said that when he stops for food, instead of going through the drive-thru, he goes inside so that he can maybe make a friend, so that he can talk to the person. And he will tell you, that wasn't his idea. But these are the kinds of things that God can do if we pray for them to happen. And it will be amazing to see how God will show up and put this person in your life just right in front of you. It's what you've been praying for. And then you can talk to them. You can be a friend to them. And maybe it doesn't happen every day. Maybe it happens once a week. There's not a quota. But maybe you have a hundred conversations and none of them turn into conversations about Jesus naturally. But if you pray for conversations like this to happen, God will honor that prayer. Maybe not in the way you see it happening. As with any prayer. But it will happen. And if it's seen in this way, evangelism will turn from something of begrudging obedience to something of joyful submission. Because I'm a sinful wretch who gets to proclaim and teach the truth about the good news of the gospel. Not the bad news, but the good news that we might be saved. And God, who needs no human being at all, might use me to be a part of someone understanding grace. And there is a joy there that surpasses any affliction that might come because of it. If we share the gospel, if we get to share some, with someone about how to see and behold grace and we are mocked and reviled and, and opposed and maybe even killed because of it, it's going to be worth it. Because that man, that woman, now understands. And it's not just Paul. If you look at verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So remember, if Paul is the preacher, this man is the everyday man. There are walls that go up in conversations that I have with people that never went up when I was a roofer. It is no accident that God has placed you in the life that you are in with the friends and the people that are currently around you. And some of them will never hear the gospel unless you are the one to share it with them. They will be in your home, in your driveway, in your office. But there's one common denominator to each story in Acts 18. Paul was occupied with the word. Apollos was competent in the scriptures. And Priscilla and Aquila had to be as well as they explained the scriptures more accurately. And so we, we will only be able to teach and to speak and to, and to disciple people to the degree to which we are acquainted with the gospel in his word. We're described as branches and Jesus as our vine. And we're to bear fruit. And yet we look and we see no fruit. And we wonder why we're drying up and thirsty when our Bibles get the lowest priority. What are you occupied with? Is it God's word? Or is it anything else?
Would anyone describe you as competent in the scriptures? It is a never-ending, ever-increasingly glorious task that somehow only gets sweeter and sweeter. There's a reason why our friend Terry was spending four hours a day reading his Bible. We aren't just reading a book. That's not what it's about. When it says that Paul is occupied with the word and that he's obviously reading it all the time, he's reading about Jesus being revealed to him. And if you feel like you aren't equipped, first of all, welcome to the family. But look, Apollos only knew the Old Testament and the baptism of John. That's all he knew. If you only know the story of Moses, you know the story of Jesus. If you only know the story of Jonah and the fish, you know the story of Jesus. If you only know David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, we have to know what Jesus, when Jesus is talking about the scriptures, we have to know what he said about what they are for. In John 5.39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Everything in our scripture, everything in our word is making us wise unto salvation so it points us to the way that that happens. Everything in scripture will be about Jesus. This means that if you only know a little bit, you know the grand story. Because Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be safe. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between his people and the Lord. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory although they never lifted a stone to accomplish anything. Jesus is the true and better Daniel who was cast into the pit of death only to come out alive three days later to deliver his people. And when seen as a, not just, oh, I have to read my Bible, I have to get up, I have to check this box off, but when seen as, I get to be occupied with Jesus, I get to be well-versed, I get to read about my Savior, I get to know who he is. Living a life for the glory of God and the good of others is the life mission for all who believe. This is the charge of the church. And we do this by being occupied with Jesus. And if we are occupied with Jesus in his word, uh, discipleship happens. Conversations about the gospel happen. These things will happen if we are rooted in, if we are occupied with Jesus in his word. But the second thing, we also do this by refuting false gospels. We do this on two specific fronts. In our own hearts, and to those who believe false gospels. Uh, Paul was reasoning with the people in the synagogue. In a sense, he's arguing that Jesus was the Messiah. And if you look down to verse 27, back to Apollos, uh, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to, to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus, which they're arguing against. Most of the new Christians in the early church were converted Jews. And Jews had been raised all of their life to believe that obedience to the law was how you got close to God and obtained favor with him. 
after these Jews came to faith in Christ, they still kept some of this old law. Old habits are really hard to break. So they taught that. Uh, in addition to faith in Christ, you must also be circumcised. You must also uh, abide by these moral, uh, traditional laws, the ceremonial laws. By keeping these commandments, they believed, you could transform yourself into the kind of person that God wanted you to be. Now, is there anything in the kingdom that you view this way? Is the gospel to you the gospel plus my church attendance, plus my devotional time, plus my serving? Are you adding anything to the gospel? How you know is when you are thinking about your relationship with your father, what's the basis? Is it, oh, we're doing good because I've been reading? Or is it, we are only good because of Jesus? The Apostle Paul calls what they're teaching a different gospel, a perverted gospel. Now, most of us today are not hung up on aspects of the Jewish law, but Christians today do believe false perverted gospels. We have a sinful heart. We have a sinful heart that longs to believe whatever it wants to believe. It's deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? Refuting false gospels is not merely an external work. It's a work that starts first with us. When we sin and even for one second think that God is disappointed, looking down at us, ashamed with us, we believe wrongly about what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done for us. In Christ, there's no such thing as the Father being disappointed. Because he can't be disappointed in Jesus. Jesus was perfect. That's where we rest. It wasn't our works that saved us. Why would our works keep us saved? Why would our works get us anywhere closer to God? In Jesus, we are there. It's still the same gospel. So here's a good rule of thumb. What do you rest in? Life is short and could be taken from any one of us in a second. What do you rest in in that moment? Is it your good works? Is it thinking about all of the things that you've done well? Or the flip side of it, do you have any rest at all? Are you looking at everything that you've done wrong and thinking, I surely am not going to make it? The only rest for weary sinners is found in the good news of the gospel that God, looking on Jesus, was fully satisfied. Fully and completely in the Jesus who stood in our place. He's our only rest. If possible, a false gospel will creep into our hearts to make us try to rest somewhere else, and it gives us no rest at all. How, what this looks like in our culture specifically is certainly one of individualism and the false gospel of me, where if any truth impedes my happiness, then it's not truth. In a world where sin and evil and death exist, false gospels are going to be prevalent. We're all looking for a way out. The issue is we don't want a way out that costs us. We don't want a way out that will cost us our lives. So there's the gospel of legalism. 
that as long as I can do a bunch of stuff, religion makes me a better person, then I can be saved. It's not good news at all to those who try and fail, which is everyone. These gospels are usually distorted gifts from God that we turn into a God to worship. And so the good news to our souls is whatever they offer out of pain and suffering, whether it's food, drink, anything, but they're good gifts, not good news. Our job as a church, as God's people, is to refute any gospel that nullifies the grace of God, especially starting with the ones in our own hearts. But then there are those who believe false gospels outside of us. Most of the time, uh, the anger and passion of this fight goes against them, goes against those who believe false gospels when they don't know. They're deceived sheep. To some people, the prosperity gospel is the only gospel they've ever known. If someone believes a false gospel, just know, you and I did too before we believed in the true one. And it's not uncommon. 2 Timothy 3 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And they're able to accumulate these teachers because they're everywhere. And many of them are popular. And many of them teach subtle, subtle false gospels that sound good. How do we refute them? First is by knowing and believing in the true gospel. Since our first uh, point of attack is our own heart, we have to know and believe in the true gospel as found in scripture, as found in our final authority on all issues. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. We have to know this. One of the most beautiful things about this passage that the English language just doesn't have a category for is that it means two things. It has two different, two different tenses to it. It means you were saved, like at a point in time you were saved, and you are continually saved. We can't translate that in English. It doesn't really make sense in any language. We are saved and we are being saved by this grace through faith. But on the front of fighting for the faith outside of us, we know who it is. We know who it is that believes something false about God. Our job as a believer is to point them to the truth about grace. Our call as a church, as people, is to refute false gospels. How do we know if an issue is a false gospel? If it goes against what the word of God says. The word of God was given to make us wise for salvation and so that anything that is unbiblical is anti-gospel. Depending on the situation, we use the Holy Spirit guidance as we have this Holy Spirit as a blood-bought gift to believers to know when and what to say. But we know who it is. We interact with them. And as we are more 
acquainted with the good news of the gospel, we can hear when something's off. We can hear when works have been added to why this person is finding rest. And it's not a, it's not a damning thing to tell them about truth. Truth and falseness have always been a thing. We are telling them the truth in love. I sat with my grandpa last night and I asked him, I said, Pops, do you know what happens when you die? And he said, well, I just hope that I did enough. That's why we refute. There are people in our lives that do not have the hope of eternity, which is the only hope. Living a life for the glory of God and for the good of others is the life mission for all who believe. This is the charge of the church. And we do this by being first occupied with Jesus in his word. And we refute false gospels for the sake of those who might believe. And the truth is, we're not going to do either of these unless the third thing is true. Do not be afraid. Paul has a legitimate cause for fear. He's already been stoned and left for dead in one place. He's already been threatened. And we saw what they did to Sosthenes, the guy who took uh, rule of the synagogue next. He knows the Savior that he's preaching about was killed by these people. He knows that he could very well be killed for what he's doing and being occupied with the word and Jesus and refuting the gospels that are contrary to it. If one and two are genuinely happening, we have cause for fear too. America is slowly becoming a place where Christianity will be outlawed and illegal. It already is in a few ways. So when it comes down to it, because of all of the external factors and the sinful heart that we reside with, we're not going to be occupied with the word. There's not a single one of us in this room that sat when we read, be occupied with the word, be occupied with Jesus and think like, yep, doing that well. And we're certainly not going to refute any false gospels unless one thing is true first. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Do not be afraid. Do you know what words like this do to a scared child when they can hear that from their father? Here's what he's saying. Have faith in me. Believe in the finished work that I have done for your security, for your safety, and for everything else you may need. 
you need no other help than to have your eternity secure in me, and it is. Your life has been once and for all paid for at the cross. Trust in that. And everything that comes to you is not going to crush you, but will be for my glory and for the good of others. Oh, my son, believe that I have taken your place. And from now on, until I call you home, and from, from this point on to eternity, I am with you, and I will always be with you. Do not be afraid. This is the only way that we change. Fear is never going to motivate us. Feeling bad for a sin is not going to motivate us to change. Something must be uprooted in our hearts. And the very way that that happens is by the love that God shows us at the cross. Charles Spurgeon said, in the greatest act of love in history, Jesus, as he's looking down, being mocked, spit on, hairs pulled from his face, as his arms are being held out by nails, in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. That is how we change. Knowing that God is not going anywhere because he didn't go anywhere at the cross. God is with me. I'm not afraid. And so we cast our fears before the cross. The real gospel is there at the cross. God did for us what we were utterly incapable of doing for ourselves. And all we can do is receive it by faith. Jesus lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we were condemned to die in our place. And by his resurrection, he infused new life into us. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, has this question where they ask, what is our only hope in life and death? And I wanted to share the answer with you. Because if you go back to the question of what do you rest in, when that moment does come, when the moment comes, what do you rest in? Listen to the answer. What is our only hope in life and death? that we are not our own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid fully for our sins with his precious blood, and he has set us free from all the power of Satan. He preserves us in such a way that without will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our head. Indeed, all things must work together for our salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures us of eternal life and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Why we refute false gospels, why we want to be occupied with Jesus in his word is because this is where we find life. It is not Jesus plus anything at all, but Jesus and in what Jesus has done at the cross, after that moment, we have every work imaginable. 
that we can do for his kingdom, not because it makes him love us more, but because he couldn't love us more. And so we, lo- we love him in return. Titus 3 says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified before God, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How this happens, you and I being sinful, utterly undeserving of any grace at all, becoming and doing something like being occupied with the word, refuting false gospels, not being afraid, how that happens is through Jesus. And so this is what we celebrate. This is how we remember who we are in Christ. And we do all of this by taking communion together. As we do it, we hold in our hands a symbol of what is true. That Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed on our behalf so that we, sinners, alienated from God, might be called heirs, might be called a son, might be called a daughter of the king. And so if you're a believer, you're welcome to the table. You are welcome to partake unworthily of the body and the blood of Jesus. If you are an unbeliever, though, or if you are in unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat. Uh, For those two categories, God says you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. But if that is you, if you are in unrepentant sin, there is no reason, no good reason for not returning to your Father. Because of what Christ has done, you have every chance, every opportunity right now to turn to your Father. Not because it will make Him love you more, but because He already loves you. And if you're an unbeliever, what we've been talking about is only true for believers. This grace, this peace, this do not be afraid, as it sits right now, you have every reason to be afraid. Would you believe? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has paid for your sins once and for all in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But you still have to do with that what you will. Will you deny it or will you believe? For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, I admit that I am sinful and in utter need of your grace to cover my sins. Would you, by your grace, allow me to be occupied with you? Allow me to refute well false gospels 
and allow me to have faith and hope in life and death. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you're ready, take your time to work through what God has given you in his word. And when you're ready, uh, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. When that moment comes, and when we have nothing left, how do we know? How do we know that we will have rest? How can we be assured in that moment that God is fully satisfied? Because by the cross, by Jesus, God was fully satisfied. By this body and this blood. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. And so, Father, we remember you. We remember not only who we are now, not only what the cross of Christ has done for us, but we just remember you. We remember and we rest in the fact that it was Jesus' body that was broken for us and Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Would you remind us again that we do have this covering in faith by the grace and the mercy that you have extended to us. And help us, Father, to be those who are occupied by your gospel so that we are always thinking about it, that we may always be strengthened by it. And so that whatever comes up since it is a life and death issue, we are able to lovingly point people back to you and back to the truth that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Would you help us, God, to see yet again the glory of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And help us to praise you. Help us to sing out as we turn now to worship you. Help us with a 
smile on our face, to cry out in thankfulness and gratefulness for everything that you have done. Help us to sing, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.